Hello, and thank you for joining us for another TRADOC Leader Professional Development Discussion. I'm Sarah Houck, the Command Information Chief for the TRADOC Communication Directorate, and I'll be moderating today's LPD. Our focus today is on a topic that the Army and society as a whole continues to battle with, and that's suicide. We have a TRADOC leader who will share his incredibly moving and impactful story of his battle with suicide. We'll introduce him in just a moment, but first I want to introduce our host for today's event, Brigadier General John Klein, the Commanding General for the Center for Initial Military Training. Welcome back, sir. You're no stranger to these LPDs. Uh, last time you were on the other side of things. I know, I'm so, throwing everything off today. <laughs> so, literally on the other side of yeah, things. So, thanks for joining us as a host today. Uh, <coughs> always a pleasure to have you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Sarah. So, hey, thanks to everybody out there. Uh, for joining us. Um, I, I promise you this is going to be a, an action-packed hour. Um, it's, as Sarah mentioned, it's an incredibly important topic, but it's one, obviously, that we're struggling with across America, and we're struggling with it within the Army. So, so important to have this conversation. Um, I first heard this story, I don't know, a couple months ago. Uh, so our Major Tom Campbell came up. He shared uh, kind of what he's been doing for quite some time, talking about his dance with suicide. So he he shared it with me, and uh, I had a chance. I think I was at the house or something, and I logged in. And I, as soon as I heard this, his story, um, I think that day or the next day, I was up in General Funk's office, and I said, you've, you've got to hear his story. In fact, all of our soldiers need to hear his story. It's that powerful. So fortunately for all of us today, we're going we're gonna to hear that today. And, um, and, you know, by way of introduction, uh, Tom Campbell is he's a critical member of our team at CIMT. Um, uh, for those that don't know him, he's, a, he's an infantryman by trade, so he's, that means he's a, he's a man of many skills, a master of none, but he's a master <laughs> of a few, I can tell you, uh, and I'll, we'll share that later on as we go. A drill sergeant, um, he's an accomplished uh, combat sniper, and uh, he's a lover of the outdoors, that I can attest to uh, wholeheartedly. Um, he likes to build and race drag cars. Um, and the bottom line is he, he just loves life. And, uh, and despite all the greatness that's going on in his life right now as a family man and a husband and everything he's got going on as a father, he hit a low point there, and he's going to tell that story today. And uh, I think it's going to be captivating. Um, I, I, my hope is that today that we make a connection with uh, you out there uh, kind of on two fronts. There's, there's a lot of golden nuggets here, but one is... Um, the importance of being engaged, um, the importance of getting help, and uh, the dangers of isolation. Um, and I think you're going to hear that resonate through Tom's story today. So I, I'm super excited, and uh, I am uh, humbled and thankful that you're, you're willing to demonstrate this personal courage and tell your story. So with that... Sarah. Absolutely. Thanks again, sir, for being part of the discussion. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to get into the tough details of suicide prevention and what that looks like for the Army. Sergeant Major Campbell is currently the G357 Sergeant Major at the Center of Initial Military Training right here on Fort Eustis. His resume includes being the member of a Drill Sergeant Hall of Fame and orders of the Maurice and St. George inductee. That Those don't exactly read like someone who may have struggled with suicidal thoughts. It's an honor to have Sergeant Major Campbell joining us today to share his experience with suicide and his battle with his mental health and his adversity to overcome it. So, Sergeant Major, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it, Sarah, and, and it's an honor to be here uh, today. And, sir, you're right. This is a topic that we've got to talk about. Uh, this is something that we don't talk about, I, I don't think, like, as much as we should. Uh, but I'm very looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah. 
Absolutely, and we appreciate you, uh, like General Klein mentioned, having the, the courage to come in and share your story with this audience today. So, And just a reminder before we get started, we want you to be part of this discussion. So leave your questions in the comments section of the Facebook Live feed or the Watch feed, and we'll try to get them answered during the event. And if we can't, keep an eye on our social media pages, and we'll get answers to those questions and get them posted in the near future. And before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know that we've shared the National Suicide Hotline uh, number in the Facebook comments. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out using this number or any of your local resources. Um, and with those, that stuff out of the way, Sergeant Major Campbell, we want to get things started with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to you so you can uh, share your story with us. Uh, thank you, Sarah. So hopefully everybody got a chance to uh, look, uh, go to the video that we'd sent out uh, earlier that kind of told part of the story. And the video, uh, that was a, a four-hour interview that they had to cut down to 10 minutes. So only focused on one of many issues I had going on at, at the same time that drove me to the brink of suicide. And, I, and I'll, I'll talk, I'll kind of give you the Paul Harvey version or the rest of the story of what happened. And for those that saw the video, I mean, it covers survivor guilt, basically, from one of the soldiers that I lost under my watch in Iraq. And, and, and I'll say this up front, that Sergeant Ryan Baum was no more or less important than any other soldier that we lost in Iraq or Afghanistan. However, he was probably one of the closest to me, and I say that for two reasons. One is I was a company first sergeant, and he was a company medic. So just that put us together all the time. The uh, other was I was the senior sniper uh, for 4th Brigade, 25th Infantry Division at the time, and the, the situation that we faced in Karma, Iraq, kind of allowed me to do sniper stuff. Even though I was the company first sergeant, I was also the company sniper. And Ryan Baum was my spotter. And the hands down, the best spotter I've ever had. So that put us together all the time. The, uh, and not to make a long story short, was there was a sniper that was brought into Karma, Iraq. And well, there's three of them that was brought in, but one of them was really good, Louie. And Louie ended up killed Sergeant Baum on a patrol that Sergeant Baum was not supposed to be on. And the reason that he wasn't supposed to be out there was he's going to leave that night because his first child was going to be born. His wife was overdue. Uh, they were going to induce labor once he arrived back in the States. And uh, uh, I was, this, it was a very hasty patrol that we were doing and it uh, wasn't well planned. Uh, and at the last minute, Sergeant Baum talked me into letting him go out with us. And uh, so where the survivor guilt came into is, I'll paint the picture real quick of what happened, uh, of the scenario when he, got, he was killed. And uh, we were trying to find where the enemy, the Al-Qaeda, they, they would harass the OP, OP3 out there, and we could never find where they were shooting from. So we, they harassed us. I spun up patrol. We're going to try to either catch them or at least find where they're shooting from. We stopped at a mechanic shop, and Sergeant Varner was the lead team leader, and his team had got behind this wall to pull security, and uh, Sergeant Varner called on radio that he'd found piles of brass, which had to be that's where they're shooting from so I moved over to that spot and I, and I squatted down so that 
I could see what they saw of the OP and I could direct fires back from the OP. While I was squatting down, a round or a shot rang out and the ground between my feet kicked up where a bullet impacted the ground between my feet. The, uh, so everybody gets behind cover. Another call comes over the radio that Doc is down. Now there's two medics out there, Doc Baum and then Doc Shohan was out there, the second platoon medic. In my mind, I had pictured Doc Shohan had been shot. Never dreamed it was Doc Baum. I looked to my left where normally Sergeant Baum always was and Sergeant Varner was there. I said, where's, where's Doc? He said, well, I don't know. He didn't come up here with the first one. I make my way back, and sure enough, Sergeant Baum is laying on the ground. And a bullet had passed through his throat side to side. And when we did the bullet, I mean, we went well, back. So, uh, ended up, Doc Shohan ended up, had to uh, do a trachea punch because uh, there was uh, tissue uh, caught in his trachea. I was doing CPR on him while Doc Shohan was trying to get breath in him. And then we got him medevaced out and what have you. So, but when we do the bullet trace from where I was at, Doc Baum was at, and then there was a cut through a reed that went back to what we call the chicken farm, where we find out later is where Louie Spotter lived and where they kept the dragon off that he shot. It was a direct line. Now, me and Louie have been chasing each other through uh, around Karma for a while. And if I was Louie, I'm pretty sure I would have, the person, first person I would have shot, and I'm sure we were a target of opportunity, would probably been the guy that's kind of in the center talking to people and it looks like he's running things out there. And uh, so I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty damn sure that Louie was aiming at me and he made the common mistake a lot of snipers do and they do what we call burning through to the target and they get so fixated on the target they don't see obstacles between them and the target in their, in their, in their optic. So I'm pretty sure Louie was aiming at me and Sergeant Bond just happened to get in the way of that bullet. Now to compound that was my kids were old enough to have long life memories of their dad. Sergeant Bond's daughter, Leah, would never know her dad. My goal in the Army was to be an Airborne First Sergeant. I was an Airborne First Sergeant. Everything after that's been free chicken. Sergeant Baum had a very promising career ahead of him. Uh, and hadn't met his goals. And at my point in my life, had I died that day, I would have been perfectly fine with what I'd accomplished. He had a lot to accomplish. So... All that added up is what built the survivor guilt uh, on it. Now, there was, I lost other soldiers out there in, in other deployments. And again, that was more survivor guilt that added on to that. And, and I won't go into great detail. We don't have a lot of time here on those. But there was some other stuff that added. But I want to skip forward a little bit to where that really festered itself because with back-to-back -back deployments either way we're coming back with deployment we're getting ready to go on the next deployment and we never had time to really be idle but 
I was in Afghanistan. I come out on some major list, uh, and we redeploy from Afghanistan. Two weeks later, I'm in my little travel trailer and headed south to Fort Bliss, Texas, to the Sergeant Major Academy. And when I get down to Fort Bliss, I'm by myself. And I'm not in charge of nobody. Nobody's really in charge of me. I mean, school hadn't started yet. Uh, I wasn't gearing up for the next deployment or, or recovering from the last deployment. It was just me. And there was a few things that was going on with me at the time as well. I was getting these migraine headaches. It just I couldn't move. I get these headaches, and they'd hurt so bad if I moved my eyeballs, it hurt. And, but I never went to the doctor about it, and I started self-medicating. Now, I found out that nothing good comes out of a bottle except for nitrous. That's if you put it in your race car. Don't huff it. Uh, but I started self-medicating, and I started doing stuff that I didn't know about. I'd hear about the next day, things like riding a wheelie on my motorcycle out of the trailer park at 3 o'clock in the morning. I never even knew I got on my motorcycle. Uh, but, there, but during that same time, I had a 20-year marriage that was falling, that had fell apart. I had a perfect credit score that went down the drink. And I prided myself on that perfect credit score. Uh, I had an estranged relationship with my kids at the time. And, uh, and now on top of that, and I'm survivor guilt and PTSD and what have you, and these stupid ha uh, headaches that I was getting, I'm by myself and I'm isolated and nobody knows any different uh, from me. Uh, so... I was suicidal before I knew I was suicidal. And that's one thing that a lot of people don't talk about. And what I mean by that was I did not care if I lived or died. I didn't care about my safety, and I damn sure didn't care about your safety. And I was doing stupid stuff. Like those that's been at Fort Bliss knows that in the afternoon, the uh, I-10 or the interstate turns into the I-10 parking lot. I would weave through cars at 100 plus miles an hour on my motorcycle and didn't care. I like rock climbing and I'd go out to Waco Tanks and I was rock free climbing 100 plus feet up in the air with no anchors because I didn't care if I fell. And uh, I had an episode in class in the Star Major Academy and I exploded, walked out of class, went home and uh, me and Jim Beam started having a, a, a doctor relationship and uh, uh, had a meeting, and because of the episode in class, the commandant called me and uh, had scheduled me for a mental health appointment, and uh, and then I had to go see the commandant afterwards. And now, so now I've got a chip on my shoulder because I never wanted to go talk to mental health, and and now I got to go prove I don't have PTSD and all that uh, stuff, and. I don't know the lady's name, but if I ever met that poor little, uh, lady that I met, met with, I'd get on my knees and apologize to her because I was such a chip on my shoulder and made such a spectacle of myself, she refused to be in the same room with me because she feared for her health. So I go see the commandant, and the commandant said something to me that registered. And he had my ERB on his desk, and now if I would have been the commandant, I would have handed my butt to me when I went in there. And I was expecting to get my butt handed to me. Surprisingly, I didn't get it handed to me. 
Commandant sat me down on, on the, the couch in his office there. And he said, asked me, he goes, you, know, you understand why I sent you over to mental health? I said, yeah, Roger, Sergeant Major, to prove I would see if I have PTSD because I told Sergeant Major Gore and the rest of the class where they could go and stormed out of class. He said, well, that wasn't very professional. He said, no, <laughs> that's not the reason. Out of these deployments, how many leaders and how many soldiers did you force to get help? And that registered because I had always, as a leader and as a senior leader, I always told my junior leaders, lead by example, never lead by words. If you can't lead by your actions, I don't need you around. And, and it kind of registered. You know, you ding dong, you've got the same symptoms that you've been looking for in your guys. And I have forced people to get help. Uh, I remember one of my squad leaders that I drug out to the truck kicking and screaming like a school kid. And I drove him down to mental health and I drug him into mental health, kicking and screaming like a school kid. And he was mad at me for a very long time after that. But what I did know was he had a plan with a timestamp. And now when uh, we stay in contact as most of the Baker boys do, and when it, before we hang the phone up, he always thanks me for that. Uh, so, all right, I'm going to give this mental health thing an honest effort. So I go back, and they hook, they sit, hook me up with this really big male psychiatrist, really big and really big. And, uh, but he was on his way out of Fort Bliss. And so I had a couple of sessions with him, and then he left, and then they sent me back to a little old lady in tennis shoes, Miss Pierce. And Miss Pierce was good. She would drag stuff out of you you never knew you had in there. And she picked up on this TBI thing and asked if I'd ever been screened. Well, no, why would I get screened? I don't have any holes in my head, and I just have these headaches, and Jim Beam seems to be a pretty good cure for that. So she sends me over to the TBI clinic. I do the MRIs and all the studies and all the tests and what have you. ends up my front left lobe was bruised, and it's bruised because right at the end of the deployment, right before I went to the academy, I fell off a cliff, and a rock smashed me on the head. I'm pretty sure that's what bruised me. But also in that same lobe, about the size of a half dollar, is dead tissue. And that dead tissue is from an aneurysm that I had during one of my brain injuries. And, uh, and then the doc said, look, over time, I mean, the, the bruise will heal itself. The dead tissue is dead tissue. Once we get you, we can get you as good as we're going to get you, and then that's going to be as good as you're going to get. And so that brought on another set of issues is now I'm retarded. And they're not going to let promote me to some major if my brain's not right. I'm not going to deploy anymore. They're probably going to put me out of the Army. And what do I have outside of the Army? I've done this my entire adult life. And that's actually what broke the camel's back. So they had given me a bunch of medicine, but I ain't taking this stupid medicine because I don't like taking medicine. And I never took it. So the treatment really wasn't doing what it was designed to do. And now I've got this festering that I'm, the rest of my life is going to be different and, it's, and I'm retarded. So I start doing retarded things like planning my death because it got to the point that I, don't have, I won't have the Army anymore. I'm not getting promoted. I won't be able to defend our country, uh, which is why I joined the Army in the first place. And the rest of my life has already went down the drink, so I have nothing left.
So then that's when I came up with a plan. Now, I'm going to pause before I talk about the plan because I want to talk about indicators. And that's one thing that normally when I do these, I normally have a, 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 a make two lists with the audience. One is indicators of suicide, and we'll make another list, which we'll talk about later on why not to get help, and we put them away. And this is really when I bring the indicators of suicide list out. Because over the years, we've trained some myths over the years. And since I've been doing this, I've dealt with a lot of suicides. I've experienced way too many suicides. Uh, and I mean, literally not three months ago, uh, we uh, had lost another soldier that it was under my watch. But uh, one of our most vulnerable populations, which would have been me in this point, was our the new guy. And, and, and you can take this, even when I talk to organizations outside of the Army, you can use this exact same thing. Something caused them to leave the last organization. In our case, probably a PCS. But nobody knows them, and just like at the Sergeant Major Academy, nobody knew me from Adam. If you talk to anybody from Class 61 and ask them if they know Tom Campbell, they're probably going to say, yeah, and they're probably not going to have anything nice to say about Tom Campbell. They're going to, uh, I mean, I was disgruntled. I hated life. I hated everybody around me. I would tell you where to go in a heartbeat. And that was just kind of the norm for that Campbell guy. So who would have picked up on the indicators that I was at the bottom of my end of my rope and I was going to make a plan? Probably nobody. Because nobody knew any different. Nobody knew Tom Campbell when he was happy, and nobody knew Tom Campbell when he when life was good. Uh, the uh, so my plan that I made, I wanted it to look like an accident because I didn't want to jeopardize my kids getting the benefits from SGLI and survivor benefits and what have you. And so I was going to stage a motorcycle accident. It just happens El Paso has the perfect road to stage that, and that's Trans Mountain Road coming down to East El Paso. And there's one spot where it makes a really sharp curve to the left. There's some picnic tables with these rock walls on the end of those picnic tables, and it's perfect to make it look like you just run, overshoot the curve, hit that wall, and that'd be the end of it. And I drove up to the top of Trans Mountain Road, and I headed down the hill on that motorcycle and had that thing screaming as fast as I'd go. And I was well over 100 miles an hour. But, but by the, for the trip up to back down, somebody had parked a car on the end of that rock wall that I was going to smash into. And in my mind, I could picture hitting that car, probably injuring them people that's in the car. I have nothing to do with this incident. With my luck, I'd get ejected off the side of the mountain, probably break my neck and be a paraplegic, and then I wouldn't be able to off myself. And I'd have to eat through a straw, and somebody would have changed my diaper the rest of my life. So somehow I got the motorcycle under control, slid sideways around the curve. Everybody that was out there at the picnic table looked at me like I was retarded, which I was. And I go back up the road where I can see that car, and I park on the side of the road and wait for them to leave. Now... There was somebody that had recently came into my life, and uh, she just couldn't believe that I was really as bitter as I put on to be. And she, 
And she'd talk to me and she kept talking to me and just couldn't believe that I really was that bitter. And she had this intuition that she needed to call and just check on me. And so she called, phone in my pocket starts ringing. I don't answer it because I'm on a mission and uh, it goes voicemail and she didn't accept voicemail. And so she called again and it rang and I wasn't going to answer it because I'm on a mission. And then she's stubborn and she called again and I said, all right, I'm going to answer this phone. So I answered the phone and this girl, little girl named Teresa is on the other end of that phone. And she literally, she talked me off the mountain that day. Literally. So, now I'm going to give this thing an honest effort. I have a, a I mean, that kind of, I don't know, I guess I kind of scared myself straight, I guess. But Teresa also had a hand in that as well. And she encouraged it. Uh, get help. There's no, there's no problem with getting help. And uh, Teresa later, I mean, she stuck with me, and later she would become my wife. And she's my wife now. And bless her heart, she still puts up with me. And I still have my days, and she still hangs in there. But she's been my rock through this whole ordeal. But uh, I go to give uh, the mental help an honest effort. And so I go back and see Miss Pierce. Now I've got another string of issues. And uh, I start taking my medicines and what have you. Well, then I start getting my chemical balances in check. I start getting sleep that I wasn't getting. The migraine headache started uh, reducing. Uh, Life started not being so bad after I got help. Uh, the, uh, but, it, it, but just kind of paint a picture on how far off the deep end I was, was I was referred to the intense inpatient treatment. And, and I'll tell you, sir, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. The best thing I could ever do for myself, but that was hard. Knowing that I walk, I walk in that door and they're taking everything away from me. I'm not walking out of that door until they're done with me. And not knowing what's going to happen during that time, because they might determine, dude, you do not need to be in the army anymore. And you do not. But I will tell you, that was the best thing I could have ever done for myself. The... Uh, so I give the medicines and on, uh, start taking my medicine. I still take them right now. And I still talk to professionals right now. Uh, but there's a few things that I learned in there. Uh, and uh, one is, uh, and, and this is one, something that, a lesson that I actually learned from Teresa that she didn't know she was teaching me. And there's, there's three things about intervention. That I've, and, and I've found this out as I've talked with many soldiers uh, over the years. Is there's two things that's very important about intervention. The first one is shut up and listen. Don't talk. Just listen. That by itself is so powerful. Uh, and the other thing is by all means do not make it about you. Even if you experience the exact same thing that the, that person has experienced that they're sharing with you, do not make it about you. 
And the third thing, which is very touchy, and this is one thing we don't talk about. As we talk about suicide prevention and what have you, we don't talk about the so what afterwards. Now, we talk about intervention and we talk about if we're going to intervene, if, if you intervene and stay with the person and then get, seek uh, professional help and get them to the ER or, or uh, the mental health or whatever, and then we stop talking about it. But I will tell you, if you intervene, you own that problem until it's not a problem for that other person. And the reason I say that is they've probably shared stuff with you they have never shared with anybody else. And in my case, I shared stuff with Teresa that nobody, nobody knew about. And, uh, but if you intervene, you've got to be the support for that person until it's not a problem for them. And I'll give you one real quick example. So my last assignment was down at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And I intervened with one of my senior non-commissioned officers down there. He was in a bad, bad place. And he'd been on the sauce and he was ready to end everything on the spot. And I could have called his battalion sergeant major. I could have called his uh, first sergeant. I could have, or his, OC, his NCOIC, because it was the OC team, the co his company team. But because I, but he was in dire need right then. I got, I just happened to be the one that got the call, and I went straight to his house and intervened. Got him, took him to the hospital, to the ER. Had to stay in there all night with him uh, until he sobered up enough to talk with a psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist did, uh, recommended he not be left alone. That next day, I take him to my house. I put him to bed because I got to get him uh, some sleep. My wife feeds him because he needs to get some food in to get rid of some of that alcohol. And the next day we sat on the porch and he shared some stuff with me that he had never shared with anybody else. And, uh, and I shared with him how to get help. And, and, and I, I made a, a promise with him that I would always be there and I would support him through uh, getting help. And he's, uh, he's working through it. He's almost done. I mean, but I still talk to that guy now because I still own that problem along with him because it's still a problem for him. Uh, and, and that's one of many examples that I could share uh, out here. Uh, but I, I guess we'll pause here before we get into engaged leadership. Absolutely. So um, I just thank you first for sharing this incredibly um, moving story with us. Um, I know it takes a lot of bravery to do that. So we appreciate you taking the time to do that. We have gotten some questions. Um, one of them is actually from uh, General Funk, TRADOC's commanding general. So I actually just wanted to, he wanted to know, what was it that Teresa said that encouraged you to get your bike off that mountain? <laughs> you know, sir, surprisingly, nobody has ever asked that question. <laughs> And uh, so I'm trying to remember back to how that conversation went. Well, one thing you shared with me is that she made a point of mentioning the fact that you needed to tell your story. Yes. So, uh, but that was after the mountain. And I'm glad you brought that up, sir, because I meant to hit on that yep. uh, before. But uh, for General Funk's question, sir, I really don't know. Because, I mean, I was so distraught at the moment. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't put... It's probably a discussion me and Teresa's going to have tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put one specific thing on her. I think it was just the fact that she saw a person behind the facade and she talked to me that as I, I think it was just the fact that she didn't talk to me like a butthole that I was. She just talked to me as a person. But I don't know, sir, I promise I'll get back with you on that question because <laughs> I'm sure Teresa, she's listening to this right now and I'm sure she's going to have an ear for when I get home. Like, you can't remember what I said. Well, maybe. maybe. No, uh, she won't. Well, I think, if anything, that uh, you knew then that you weren't necessarily isolated at that point. You know, that's probably the fact that there, there was somebody that was in my yeah. court. Somebody falling for uh, you. On there, because... At the time, when I went off, I felt that I was alone and nobody cared uh, uh, about me. But I want to touch on what you just said, sir, is for years after that happened, I never told nobody, nobody about what was going on with me. And nobody in the academy knew. In fact, one, the only friend that I really had in the academy, uh, Tim Wayne, uh, he's retired now. He was an old disgruntled guy, he old artillery guy. We won't hold that against him. But uh, uh, even he didn't know. I mean, when the first time he heard my story was years after the academy. He called me. As soon as he heard it, he called me. He goes, dude, I had no idea, man. Why didn't you say something to me? That's the point. Nobody knew about it. And so I was... we. Uh, after the academy, I went to Afghanistan, came back from Afghanistan, came here to Tradoc, and uh, I was having issues and problems. And uh, Teresa, we were sitting one night, and Teresa was like, why don't you talk about what happened and how you overcame it? Uh, yeah, I mean, people don't hear that. I mean, it's so major. People will hear it, and then they'll think I'm less than a leader, and they'll probably jeopardize, limit what my opportunities and what have you. And uh, so she kept on me about it. It just happened. There was an initiative going on uh, to uh, get rid of the stigmas. See, the chief of staff of the Army at the time was having this, uh, and they, they were trying to find soldiers to tell stories that overcome suicide, financial issues, married issues. It just happened. I did it all at one time. And uh, word got out and actually the crew at the uh the uh here at fort eustis found out about it and, they, and they're the ones that did the video made that first uh video that was made about it and uh but i'll tell you the the years that i spent doing this if i talk one person off the ledge it's worth every minute of it yeah absolutely Looks like we got a. Yeah, we've got um, some other. Thank you, everyone who continues to send us questions. Um, they're incredibly engaging. We're going to really do our best to get get them answered. Um, General Klein, so this is my squad, or Tim's, is the Army's big push. It has been for a very long time to really get after some of these yeah. um, harmful behaviors that we unfortunately find in our squads. So, um, how 
important is it to combat suicide with yes, Tim's? Uh, well, how important is this initiative? This is huge. It's more than just suicide. And then you, I'm, I know you got a lot of thoughts on this one. He's chomping <laughs> at the bit. And I bring this up at, you know, and Tom and I have talked about this quite a bit. And uh, Command Sergeant Major Scott Beeson, you know, my battle buddy, he and I have talked about this quite a bit. And, you know, he's, he's had some, uh, he's had some tough experiences in his life as well. But, um, when I think of Tim's, you know, you, you hear the SMA talk about it and there's, there is a lot, a lot of, and he's always trying to kind of level the playing field on this topic. And, um, there are misconceptions out there. Um, I have chosen to kind of look at it through my own lens and, um, and that's what I share with, uh, these company commanders and first sergeants out there. And the way I just, the way I look at it is, you know, Tim's for me, my squad, um, it doesn't have to be necessarily even organic to the unit. Um, it was best said actually by one of my civilian employees that he said, who, who are your zero two or zero three in the morning friends that you can call? And so that's, you know, as I think about Tim's, um, it's, it is uh, certainly uh, Sergeant Major uh, Beeson. It is certainly this individual here. It is my aide-de-camp. It is my driver. It's my wife is in Tim's. Now, I know I'm confusing some other little paradigms that are out there, but that, that's a zero two in the morning kind of friend. That's somebody I trust. That's somebody I can communicate with. That is somebody that can talk common sense to me. That is somebody I can rely on. That's Tim's to me. And everybody, everybody needs that. And wherever you find it, you need this, this tight circle of folks. And um, I, I, there's a lot of discussion on bystander intervention out there, a hugely important topic. We absolutely need to have bystander intervention out there. But I view bystander intervention as kind of that, that's the next, that's kind of your last hope, right? So is this individual that you don't know, but because of their morals and their values, they're going to intervene and stop something bad from happening. Hopefully before you have to rely on a bystander, you've got Tim's. That, that's my thoughts. Yeah, and I'll tell you, sir, this is something that that surprisingly, well, it ain't surprisingly, the Army has fought this for a long time. And and, I, and I'll share back, uh, so General John Wickham, Chief of Staff of the Army in, from uh, 1984 to 1987, uh, I had a discussion with him not too long ago, and he had the same fight back when he was the Chief of Staff of the Army. Uh, but... Tim's is, I, I'm going to tell you, I think it's one of the most important uh, uh, components to fighting, to combating suicide. But there's, there's, some other, there's another part to that. So and part of it is relationships. And it's very easy to have a professional relationship with our peers and subordinates. It's easy. We come to work, we talk about work, we go home, and that's it. But building a personal relationship with our peers and subordinates, I think that's the crucial part, and both in Tim's and as we talk about suicide uh, all together. And I like watching people, uh, and I like studying how what makes people tick. I'm no psychiatrist by any stretch of the words, uh, but I found, but I did notice that some people build personal relationships very easy with their peers and subordinates. Some people have a hard time doing it. Some people cannot do it at all, no matter how hard they try. And it kind of intrigued me on what makes the difference. Why can we not all just be, have this be able to build personal relationships? And what I mean by personal relationships, not to get confused with fraternization, is 
Whenever we, you can go into the workspace of your peer and subordinate and talk about anything other than work, like the duck hunting next weekend or fishing or hot rods or whatever, but you learn the likes and dislikes and hobbies and discomforts of your peers and subordinates and you personally have a relationship with them. Now, some people have a hard time doing it. And part of it, it goes to personalities. But some people can't do it at all. And, I, and that's the kind of the group I really started watching. And then when I started looking at who they are, ended up, that's most of our incompetent leaders. They have to keep a divide between them and their peers and subordinates for fear of being exposed. A lot of times they tend to be the experts. Uh, and again, it's to create that, that defense. There Now, I say that, please, nobody out there confuse that with, uh, with uh, introvert versus extroverts. Because what I have found out is the introverts tend to be more passionate about those personal relationships. They're not as outgoing, but they tend to be more passionate for them. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and please, all the general officers out there that's listening, don't take any offense to this, but most of our general officers are introverts. And I, that's, and I really think that's why. They're so passionate about their people. I had a commander who was an extreme introvert. And I will tell you that commander probably was the most passionate about the people in his organization and more so than the organization itself. And, and I think that's where we really start get into is if we can focus, if we quit focusing so much on organizations, we focus more on the people and the organizations, the organizations will take care of themselves. Some would argue that the organization is the people. And they are. And if you know Funk Fundamental number 25, you know the Army is a people business. So um, I see another question up here. Yeah. And this, this will dovetail, right? So yeah, Sergeant Major Campbell, this is one. This is a really great question. So. Um, how important is mentorship and being engaged without being overly intrusive? General Funk likes to say being positively intrusive, and it makes a lot of sense. So how do you find that balance of being overbearing and too engaged with your, with you know, your units and squad mates? That is a great, great question. And actually, I flipped my card over to the, my back <laughs> notes that I had exactly on that. The, uh, so... I'm going to tell you, I mean, one, mentorship, I think, is, is, is extremely positive, but it can be extremely detrimental as well. And, and I think that's one thing as junior leaders, I mean, find that mentor. Find that leader that seems to, everything seems to go right for that leader. That's who you need to make your mentor. Not one that, that tells you how right everything is. And that's one thing I learned early in life. My grandpa taught me a lot of life lessons is the guy that has to tell you how good he is the guy to stay away from. <laughs> the guy that just naturally everything seems to just fall in line with this guy no matter where he walks, that's the guy you want in your back pocket and you want to follow and you want to mentor. But I completely agree with General Funk's uh, uh, comment of being positively intrusive leadership. And I think that's something we kind of falling away from and and, and I'll, I'll reflect back I mean this will we'll go down uh, memory lane real quick and I think back when I was a private and lived in the barracks and at that time we had two to three people per room 
and it was an open room. There was a bathroom on the side, and there's three people in there. And there's three bunks lined up around that, uh, around that room. And we probably had ATV in there if one of us went out and bought one, and probably a VCR in there if somebody went out and bought one. And we'd put a VCR into the tape, and the three of us would sit and watch a movie, and we would talk. And uh, then uh, the, uh, whenever we shined boots in the evening, we did shine a, I didn't shine do this out there by myself back when we used to shine boots. We would sit on the tables behind the barracks, and we'd turn the radio on with, and open a beer, and we would sit there, and we would talk. And we always had this interaction and this and talking. But uh, intrusive leadership, every morning I knew at 5.30 in the morning, team leader's going to open my door and going to inspect my room. I knew that in the afternoon, because team leaders normally live in the barracks anyway, was going to come by and check on me and see how I was doing. And if we were acting like fools, we was going to get treated like a fool. But... I guarantee you, my team leader knew everything about me, and he was intrusive, but it was positively intrusive. I remember the days when we used to go for, well, actually, when I got married, and I moved off post. <laughs> Guess what? Team leader came out of my house to make sure my house <laughs> was up to par. Not expecting to make sure I had my socks folded in the drawer like when I was in the barracks, but to make sure that I was in a safe living environment. And I think we got away from that a little bit. Yeah, well, we were talking about this, you know, yesterday. We went from a time when we had uh, folks that were in a common area, they were watching a 13-inch tube TV with the VCR built into it. And, um, and I was talking to General Funk about this yesterday. We, you know, there was a time when you looked at when, when units were deploying, you did ROSONI, you were underneath a big clamshell or a big tent, and all the bunks were kind of, you know, all the little cots were out, and everybody was... And then I don't know what happened, but over time, people started to put little ponchos over their hooches. And in and, and, and places like Hohenfels, where you had double stack bunks, people would hang their ponchos there and, you know, start to isolate themselves. And they were captivated by their phone sitting on their bed and didn't need to interact. And so we, we just kind of naturally moved away from this. Right. And, and I think one of the things, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but I'm saying, I think one of the things that pushed us to that was our one-to-one barrack standards. When we went to that, because when, mm. I, when we was in the barracks, there was interaction, we talked. Now the soldiers go to their room, and now they're isolated until first call, and they come back out, and they poke their head back out uh, with it. So, uh, how do we exactly get to see those indicators? You spoke a lot about indicators and how people just don't know, and if our soldiers are in their rooms, how, how do you know? How do you know if somebody's struggling with depression? How do you know if somebody has those, those plans in place, those timelines in place? Um, and how do you even know if it's a true indicator or how do you just see that? So he, here's what I say. And this is going to be very contradictive to what we've been trained. Can you prevent suicide? No. And, and that's, probably going to, that's probably going to blow up the comment section. We can intervene, but we can't prevent. And why? And here's what I mean by that: is I look at my both my situation and I look at other suicides that I've dealt with. Is in my case, I had a plan and nobody knew about it. There was no, there wasn't anything to intervene with. But if somebody says 
that they're thinking about it. They just openly say, I'm thinking about suicide. Chances are they don't have a plan. But what they are doing is they're testing the waters. And if there's no reaction, that's going to drive them to the next phase is developing the plan. So we have to react. The, uh, and indicators, it goes back to that personal relationship. If you don't build those personal relationships, you're never, and I don't care what we put out there as what the, the list of indicators are, um, depression, and I tell you what, I've never seen anybody sell their stuff, but that's always out there, or give away all their stuff. But all those indicators, no matter what the, uh, we, the list we make, if we don't have those personal relationships, we're never going to see the indicators and we're never going to be able to intervene with it. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting to hear that sometimes it all depends on the person because it takes one thing to realize that somebody's a little off today. And you have, how do you start that conversation yeah, with somebody yeah. to intervene and to drag them kicking and screaming or even just to have a conversation right. with them? So I, that's one of the questions I always ask when I do this in person is, I mean, how do you intervene? And there's no right or wrong answer to that. Because just what you said, it's, it's personality based. How I engage with general clients is not going to be how I engage with you. Uh, and it goes... But when you see a change in mood, in performance, isolation, and, and all those other indicators, though, that's where you've got to end it. But uh, you've got to start asking the questions. And, and I would tell you is don't beat around the bush. I mean, that's one, that's, uh, I mean, ask specifically. But, I will tell you, if you don't have, you've, so there's three things, let me back up real quick, to build a personal relationship. There's three things you've got to have to build a personal relationship. You've got to be open, you've got to be honest, and you've got to be transparent. Or you'll never be able to build a, a personal relationships with your peers and subordinates. But you've got to build those personal relationships to earn the trust and confidence mm -hmm. for them to open up. If you don't have that trust and confidence in your peers and subordinates, they're never. You can ask questions who you're blue in the face, and they're never going to open up to you and tell you that, there's a, that they're facing a problem that they need help with. Absolutely. And we are getting low on time, but I really do want to make sure that I ask this question because it's kind of a reoccurring theme is, Sergeant Major, what's your, <laughs> what's your advice to somebody who is – currently struggling and may not be currently getting help so, or um, even if somebody's in the walking down that road of getting help how do how do you stay confident in what you're doing and to even seek help so here, here's what I'll tell you we've made over the years we've made a lot of gained a lot of ground and get rid of the stigmas of mental health there's still a lot of stigmas out there and the stigmas is what kept me from getting help. Uh, I mean, I had a persona, and as a senior leader, I was above. I mean, I, I was immune, or I was supposed to be immune to PTSD and depression and all that good stuff. Uh, but part of the stigmas, though, what drove me was the fear of the so what if I got help, like 
what we've learned over the years or the myths of security clearances going in jeopardy, deployability, peer perception, uh, uh, take your pick. Uh, but I will tell you this, is once I started getting help, I deployed after that. I still got promoted to sergeant major. I had a top secret security clearance. I still have top secret security clearance. And it's been renewed three times or four times that since then. My peer perception is once I started telling my story, peers, I was afraid they would look less of me. But I've had so many peers come back and say, brother, dude, thanks for sharing that. And a lot of peers come back with, brother, I'm facing issues and I really don't know where to go to get help. So I would tell you, if, if you're on the fence, you're thinking about mental health or you need mental health, do it. I'm telling you, it's do it. And I will tell you, the hardest part of getting help is walking in the door. That is the hardest part of getting help. But you got to compare to what would be the what would be the, the circumstances if you don't. In my case, had I not get help, got help, I wouldn't be here right now. Before we get to this important question, um, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, and it was the, the risk with the new guy, right? Um, we always have a new, we, new guys are a part of our business with the transitions from basic training to AIT, AIT to first unit assignment, and so on and so forth. Sponsorship is a part of that. H how do we as leaders help get in front of this issue with the new guy being isolated? So I think that's where we've got to be creative. We've got to bring them into the fold up front. And I think that's part of, I mean, we, we used to talk a lot about, uh, I mean, I mean now we call it RSOI, uh, but the uh, uh, integration. And that's where leaders have got to be right on top of the integration piece and get those guys integrated, not just within the unit, or in our case, Tim's or our squad, we got to get them integrated in with their peers, uh, with it, and I, and and we got to start build right up front. We've got to build that trust and confidence right up front, and build those personal relationships with the new guy in particular, uh, right up. That that is yeah. something that we can't yeah. you can't push to the yeah, right. We're trying to do that before they even make the move. Right, you know, right. That's that's the sweet spot. Okay, this General Funk's got a yeah, very important one. Here. I think, um, unfortunately, this will probably have to be one of our last questions, but General, we just talked about um, stigmas, and General Funk wants to know, how do we get in front of stigmas? How do we get rid of stigmas so that mental health is just mental health and people making themselves a better version of themselves? No, sir. I really think leaders got to talk. I really, I mean, that's really the bottom line that I would say is, is for leaders, I guarantee you, there's senior leaders that's on this, this LPD right now that face the same thing I did. I guarantee you. I think to get rid of stigmas, we got to have examples. Kind of like that movie Enemy at the Gates and, the, and, the, and the, the, they're trying to figure out how to get their men to, quit, to not be cowards. And how do we get our man to quit crapping their pants? Well, we need a hero. That's what we need. We need leaders to talk about their experiences, how they overcame it, and roads to recovery. And, I mean, we can give classes all day, and we can have 
I mean, our suicide awareness class, annual training that we uh, give, and our sharp classes that we, our annual training that we do, all are 350-1 type training. But uh, I am a sole believer that leaders, you've got to get out and share your story. Don't be afraid to share your story. You've got to share your story. Awesome. Absolutely. And we can't thank you enough, Sergeant Major, for taking the time to join us today and sharing your incredibly moving story and your experiences with us. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up today? No, I mean, don't think I, I leave with everybody. I mean, two things. One is leaders, you've got to build those personal relationships you, and get started on it right now. The, uh, the other thing that I would leave is if you intervene, and I can't stress this enough, you own that problem until it's not a problem for the other person. Be that rock, be that support, and stick with them all the way through the road to recovery. Absolutely. And uh, again, we thank you for joining us uh, today, uh, Sergeant Major and uh, General Klein. Uh, thank you for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to Yeah, so share? our intent will be to, you know, this, the reason why we wanted to record this mm -hmm. is that uh, I, I, you would expect out there, obviously we'll push this, this out, but um, we're probably going to take portions of this, this LPD and, and then um, it, it's going to be exported to the Drill Sergeant Academy. We can export it anywhere we want to export it out there. But I, you can expect that Every single soldier coming into the ranks of the United States Army are, is going to see a portion or snippets of this video just because it's so powerful. And other than that, uh, I am proud you're part of my squad, man. Appreciate Pleasure. it, sir. You bet. Yeah, and I think General Funk, um, he sends his uh, well wishes and he says that he's incredibly proud of you. for So from General Funk. Um, I want to thank both of you for sharing your time today. Uh, this is incredibly important information. Um, and I want to thank everyone who tuned in. Thank you for sending those questions. We'll get some answers to you. Um, suicide continues to be a silent enemy within TRADOC, the Army, and our nation. As we've discussed today, one of the most important pieces of preventing suicide is to show people you care. A conversation, a text message, a phone call, show people you see them. You understand them and you value them. The moment people join our army, they become part of something so much bigger than them. We owe it to them to protect them, and that includes their mental health. Erasing the stigma for seeking mental health starts with our leaders who are engaged and dedicated to showing each of their soldiers their commitment to them as a whole. If you or someone you know is struggling, please use the national hotline and any other local resources to get help. Join us in two short weeks on February 23rd when founder and CEO of Small World Solutions, Dr. Bruce Stewart, will be the guest for our next LPD titled Power of Inclusion, The New IQ. You don't want to miss it. And thank you, as always, and victory starts here.